Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime. Really happy to welcome Karen Oden to the podcast today. USA Today bestselling novelist Karen Oden earned her PhD in English at NYU, writing her dissertation on the discursive origins of trauma and PSD in Victorian railway disasters in novels, medical treatises, and legal texts. She taught English literature at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, has written introductions for novels for the Barnes & Noble Classics series, and edited for the academic journal Victorian Literature and Culture, which is published by Cambridge University Press. All of her novels are set in 1870s London with seedy Whitechapel, the rowdy music halls, dangerous railway accidents, and the smelly Thames River. Her first three novels, A Lady in the Smoke, A Dangerous Duet, and A Trace of Deceit, each featured a different young woman protagonist who is drawn into a mystery when someone she loves is injured or murdered. They've all won awards for historical mystery and historical fiction. Her newest book, Down a Dark River, is about a former thief and bare-knuckles boxer named Michael Coravin, who becomes an inspector at Scotland Yard. Her next book is a sequel to that one, Under a Veiled Moon. Karen is a recipient of a grant from the Arizona Commission on Arts and a member of both Arizona chapters of Sisters in Crime, the Grand Canyon Writers and Desert Sleuths, where she serves as the programming chair for 2022. She also assists with the social media group at Sisters in Crime National. Her e-newsletter publishes every six weeks, featuring an exclusive content and essays and giveaways by guest authors. You can connect with her at her website, which is in the show notes. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Julie. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's lovely to be here and reading your bio is so interesting because those Penguin Classic series and, you know, the work you did on your PhD triggers some, oh, I've probably seen her name or, oh, this has happened. Um, And so I want to talk about what draws you to 1870s London, which is very specific. Um, But let's start at the beginning, as I always do in this podcast, and talk about your journey as a writer. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a novel? I think I was about 10. (laughs) And I I wrote a a really terrible novel, of course, that was... (laughs) Probably a knockoff of a Trixie Belden book, I think. Um, I think I, I think I had a club. I didn't call them Bob Whites. I called them like the Cheetahs or something. I don't know. Anyway, and I think I wrote maybe eight or ten pages, and that was as far as I got. Yeah. But you had so you had the bug early, and you were automatically going for um, mysteries. But you you went along a path of academic writing and research and everything else. Did your creative writing 
you know, did you develop creative writing skills at the same time or, you know, what, how did you build your craft on fiction writing, which is very different than academic writing? It is. And (laughs) this is going to sound ridiculous. I think that my writing career really began when I was an undergraduate at Cornell. Um, Originally, I planned to be a doctor. I was going to go to med school. And I started out as a bio major. And about two-thirds of the way through my time at Cornell, I was taking a class called Animal Physiology. And it required me to do a lab in which I dissected a live rabbit. I know. It, it, I, um, necessary, <laughs> I hope we don't yeah. lose all of our readers at the very thought of that, or all of our listeners. Um, and, I, and I was standing there in the lab, and I was teamed up with three other people. There were four of us all working on the same animal, of course, and, and it was anesthetized, I mean, and lying on the table. And these three other people were so excited and so into it. They were looking at the heart beating and, the, the, you know, all this, and I was standing there thinking, I hate this. I really don't want to be here. I don't want to be a bio major anymore. I really don't want to go to med school. And I'm really enjoying this creative writing class that I was taking as part of my breadth requirement. And I was learning how to write um, short stories. So what ended up happening was I finished the bio degree. I think I had only two more classes to take. So I finished the bio degree because that was a useful degree. You could do something with it. English is not useful, right? Um, And... But I finished the English degree as well, and I ended up going on to the University of Michigan, where I was enrolled in a PhD program. And I was only there for a year. I started the master's, and I was at least um, aware enough to know that I wasn't ready to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. I had come late to my English degree, and I simply wasn't as well-read as a lot of my classmates. I also wasn't emotionally ready. I mean, a PhD, you really need to be emotionally ready, and you have to be aware yeah. of your interests and deeply committed to them. And I would sit in these classrooms, and one person would be talking about feminist theory and doing this incredibly in-depth analysis of a book using that. And then someone else would be talking about post-colonial theory and why it was so important that we situate things with respect to their historical contexts. And I was pretty much sitting there thinking, I like to read books. <laughs> I just, yeah. I just wasn't there. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so, and plus that I was, I was pining for my boyfriend who was living in San Diego, who eventually became my husband. And anyway, so after a year I took off, I, I left Michigan and I went to San Diego bounced around in a series of jobs in my 20s, marketing, publishing. Um, My husband uh, got out of the Navy. We went to New York so that he could do his MBA at Columbia. And while he was there, I worked at Christie's Auction House for two years, which became Mm. the fodder for Trace of Deceit, which is my third book and takes place in the art and auction world. And while I was working there, though, I thought when George gets finished with his schooling, I'd like to go back. I feel ready for my PhD. I've done a lot of reading. I know what I'm interested in. And so I got to uh, the point where I I applied. I applied basically only to sort of New York schools because I knew we were going to be sort of pinned there. And I got into NYU. And my first semester there, I took a class with a really wonderful professor named Carolyn Dever. 
she was sort of a rising star, a recent hire, a young woman. And the class I took was called The Dead Mother, which is <laughs> it's a great title for mm. a class. Um, and, but her premise, and yeah, I mean, this is somewhat simplistically stated, but her premise was that in the 19th century, there are a lot of orphans in literature, um, beginning with Emma Woodhouse, you know, for Jane Austen, but Jane Eyre, um, Oliver Twist, Daniel Deronda, mm -hmm. all of these characters who don't have mothers or have, you know, lost mothers or dead mothers or un emotionally unavailable mothers. And she wanted to, you know, she was kind of looking at why. What does that mm -hmm. permit? And I found that question fascinating. You know, the, the idea yeah. that, because I think part of the reason that Victorian writers did that was to create a space for these characters to define themselves, to self-authorize mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. create their own lives and their own identities. And it's appropriate that it was happening in Victorian times because during this period, people, there were a lot of opportunities um, for people to enter new professions or sort of, to use an Americanism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mm -hmm. um, that, that weren't around in the 1700s. Um, you know, more people were voting, more people were reading, more people were joining professions that were sort of beginning to consolidate and, and form like right. the medical profession and things like that. Anyway, so I just got really interested in Victorian England. And then, um, and I was lucky because NYU had a strong Victorian department. Um, there were two other professors, John Maynard and Jeff Spear, who were there. And then my, about halfway through my time there, Mary Poovey joined. So these were all, you know, Victorianists who had um, a lot to teach me. And I just really fell for the 19th century. Now, this this time when you're, you know, in your 20s and you're figuring things out, and you're working for Christie's and you're, you're uh, you know, before you went to grad school and then when you went, mm -hmm. were you still writing? Was the creative writing part or, you know, did you, once you left undergrad, did that go by the wayside for a while? When did your creative writing come back in? You know, I wrote a really, um, I, don't know, I shouldn't say this. this is, it sounds terrible, but I, I wrote a bad novel in my early twenties. Um, mm -hmm. It was about. Uh, it was based on a true story that I'd read in the New Yorker about a man who had come back from World War II and brought some Nazi war loot with him, and he had hidden it in his attic. And it wasn't until he died that his children found it. And I thought that was such a great wow. story. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that, you know, I, as, as I say this, I think, oh, this, yeah, this is what I do now. I find some real true story and then I fictionalize it and I put it into a book. That's, that's what all my books are. Um, but I didn't really stick with creative writing. I tried, I wrote that one, um, sent it out to a few places, got rejected and gave up. And mm -hmm. then I, you know, got into the academic sort of track and I did a lot of academic writing. I wrote essays, I wrote introductions, I wrote critical articles, you know, all of you know, my dissertation. Um, and then it was after that I realized I didn't want to write about other people's writing anymore. I actually wanted to write a novel of my own. So I was at home with my son and my daughter when they were little and I started up again. 
And did you start taking workshops or classes or, or how did you develop your craft at that point? You know, I, I did. I, I started writing um, and then I joined, there was a online, it was actually the first year they did it. Um, Arizona State University's Piper Center had a online novel, I think it was called novel, Your Novel in One Year or Your Novel Your Year or something like that. And it they had two different tracks. One of them I knew wasn't for me. I think it was science fiction or something. The other one was young adult. And I thought, well, you know, I can, I can join. I'm sure that anything you learn is going to be applicable to other genres. Mm -hmm. So I joined the, uh, the young adult one and I did that. I think it was a nine or 10 month program. Um, and we would, you know, exchange work and there were lectures, there were online lectures that we could listen to. Um, people like Bill Konigsberg, um, I think Jewel Parker Rhodes, um, a few other, um, but you know, some young adult writers. And when you talk about it would be applicable to other genres, was crime fiction always where you wanted to go or, or were you exploring what type of writer you were as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I thought I wanted to write young adult, but looking back, I have a feeling that what I really wanted to do was write mysteries, but because I had tried to write one and it had been so shot down, I thought, oh, I'll try writing something else instead. And I, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, like, I don't want to say it was playing it safe, but doing sort of the thing that I didn't really truly want to do felt safer than doing the thing that I really wanted to do, yes. Yes. if that makes sense. And yeah. I think that, you know, I, I, it was interesting because I was listening to Frankie Bailey's talk this morning, uh, just because I wanted to, you know, listen to a podcast while I was doing some chores. And I had to laugh because she was talking about how she started writing romantic suspense because when she was a kid, she read Mary Stewart and Victoria Holt and Phyllis Whitney. And this was my triangle. These, these, those were the <laughs> same three and, and Daphne du Maurier. Let's throw her in there too. So I had, I had four, but they were my, they were my go-to. I think that they, mm -hmm. those four writers, those four women put down tracks in my brain that have, have never left. Um, I really like suspense. Yeah. Yeah. I think they put a little tracks in a lot of people's brains. Yeah. Um, but you know, as you're, I, I love what you said, and I just want to go back to it about you'd been shot down with your first novel and most people's first novels are terrible. Mm -hmm. So you're learning how to write a novel. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of to be expected. But you you didn't want to risk that again. Yeah. And how writing is really risking putting yourself out there or even creatively saying, I want to do this and spending months doing something, um, that you care about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you know, we, we need to honor that about writers and what they do, that it's a brave thing, um, to, to risk all of it. I completely agree with you. And now that I'm, I mean, I've four books in and working on my fifth, you know, being kind of, I guess, I guess a little bit further along the writing track, mm -hmm. when I talk to people who are just getting started or who are halfway through drafting their first book and, or they've gotten a whole heap of rejections and I just want to tell them this does not, do not take all those rejections to mean 
that you can't be a writer. Take it to mean you still have things to learn. You're on the right mm-hmm. track. Just keep on going. I mean, when I yes. look back, I, I saved that first truly dreadful Nazi war loot, you know, book that I wrote. And I read the first chapter once in a while to see how far I've come. Yeah. And, and yes. it's not because I hadn't read. I'd read and read and read like a maniac all through my childhood. It's not because I hadn't read books, but reading books and writing them are, are two different things. Two different things. Mm-hmm. And your craft gets better. I mean, I do think the premise of that very first novel is really intriguing. So <laughs> it may be something to put in your pocket if you ever move out of Victorian yes. London, but mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> that has served you well. Tell me a little bit about your writing process. I mean, you are so steeped in this error, which is wonderful because you've likely been reading about it from so many different angles that you know tiny details that um, will intrigue readers. Historical fiction requires such accuracy. The readers are so um, knowledgeable about what happened and when it happened and and really demand that. Whereas, you know, current novels, you can make it all up. (laughs) Who's going to say anything? But you really, you know, if you're writing about 1870s London, you have to know your stuff. And obviously you do. What about that era and that decade really um, intrigues you so much? I think that it's the most interesting decade of Victoria's reign. She was on the throne from 1837 to 1901. And if you think about how long that was, how much happened during those six decades, the British Empire expanded until it was, what was the phrase, um, uh, the sun never set on it because it was on every single continent. You had the expansion of railways, you had wars, you had, I mean, the the vote expanded in 1832. It added 250,000 men to its roles. In 1867, it added another million. Um, You went from having 20 newspapers in London to having over a thousand literacy rates rising. Uh, Everything was changing so much. But the thing about 1870s that I love it's sort of right there in the heart of her era, you know, and it's yeah. right there smack in the middle. But what's interesting is that in the 1860s, you saw uh, two things, uh, rising literacy rates and a burgeoning of newspapers. So people were talking about a lot of social issues and things more. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece of it is that in 1867, when another million people, men, of course, were allowed to vote, it it shifted things so that people were enfranchised in a way that they had not been before. So mm-hmm. you've got people talking about things and people voting on things. And as a result, in the 1870s, you saw this rash of new laws come into being that governed all kinds of stuff. I mean, for the first time, children between the ages of six and 12, boys and girls, were required to go to school. This is a big deal. Um, For the first time ever, a woman who uh, was married and who worked for a wage was allowed to keep the wage legally. She did not have to hand it over to her husband. First time ever. Wow. That's a big deal. Wow. Um, There were, you know, things passed, but, you know, governing whether women could get divorced and, I don't know, you know, what what kind of property they were allowed to own and all these different things. And they're very material changes that happened as a result of all this changing legislation. So 
I think it's a time of profound change and it allows me to, I think, more easily explore changes that are going on in our world because I can drop them in mm-hmm. to Victorian London and you know, sort of play around with them and work with them there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, it makes me want to look at timelines and see when was happening and what was happening and everything else. But I think that that sounds like an incredibly um, wonderful and rich time to be writing about. Uh, obviously, you know, you're, <laughs> you've got a lot of work um, in in all of your novels coming into it. Um, to, let's back up a little bit. Tell me about your writing process. <clears throat> Is it Again, academic writers, like technical writers, you know, newspaper people have to relearn in order to be um, fiction writers oftentimes. But, you know, did you take some of that from your academic uh, exercises or how you did things? I talked to Wanda Morris on this podcast, who's a lawyer, and, and, you know, she talks about writing her first draft and longhand and she thinks it's from her years as a lawyer taking notes in court or taking notes with clients that that's how her brain connects with ideas is longhand so that's what she does so she's made that work is there are there things that you had to unlearn or are there things that you do as a you know academic with note cards and with sources and things that you've brought over to your fiction writing that's that's another really great question it's interesting that Wanda says she writes longhand that first draft Because when I am first starting a book and first connecting to my protagonist, I write longhand. I I think that I need to do that in order to physically connect with Mm -hmm. my character and my character's voice. It doesn't, there's something removed about the typewriter as opposed to like having my hand on the, you know, on the page with the pencil in hand and writing. So I always begin with, I'd say maybe 10 or 15 longhand pages. Sometimes it's just the backstory. For example, when I first started writing uh, Down a Dark River, I began with Michael Corvin's backstory and, mm-hmm. you know, where he was when he was, when he was 19. And you know, sort of from that eye perspective. And in fact, for all of my secondary characters, now that I think about it, I write their backstory from the eye perspective, longhand. All those significant characters in Down a Dark River, I do. Um, so that's, so that's, and I'm not sure whether I did that in academic writing or not. I don't remember, but I know that's definitely a piece of my, of my process. Start out, start out longhand. Mm-hmm. One thing that um, I did definitely carry over from my academic writing was the very first time that I tried to write an academic paper. It was, it was a flop, which is, you know, just as, as you'd expect, but I figured out how to do it. And what I could do is sit down. I sat down with three or four papers that I had found intriguing and interesting. And I looked at the pattern of them, for example, how they open with an interesting sort of, you know, fun, curious premise, then backed out and said, okay, this is where I'm going to situate my paper with respect to all the other papers that are written on this topic. Then it moved on to the argument and, you know, sort of a a textual analysis. And then, so I saw a pattern Mm -hmm. and I think that that helped me 
when I, when I first started writing mysteries, I would sit down, for example, with, you know, the born identity or Tana French novel or whatever I was sitting down with. And I could actually look at them structurally kind of, I was able to go meta and look structurally at them and see how they worked. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely a skill that I imported over because, and, and I think my experience of not knowing how to write a academic paper to being able to analyze and see how you to do it and then doing it and getting successfully published was a good lesson for me because I thought, okay, well, maybe I can do that here too. Yeah. And so do you, um, you mentioned earlier that you'll find a real life story or, or article or something that hooks you and that you, you don't necessarily use for the novel, but you use as the way to have an idea that you use in the novel. Mm -hmm. Um, So is this in reading newspapers of the time or, or, you know, do you, are you constantly taking notes as you're, you're investigating? How do you find those stories? I think I'm a little bit like one of those Roombas, you know, (laughs) (laughs) or, or a bottom dweller. I'm kind of a scavenger, I guess, for stories. I remember when I was writing A Trace of Deceit and I had the basic premise in my mind, which was going to be about this young woman, Annabelle, her brother, Edwin, uh, she, she's a art student at the Slade School, which opened in London in 1871 and admitted women for the first time anywhere in Europe on the same footing as men for art study. She has an older brother named Edwin, who is a successful forger, but he's been caught and he's, he served his time in jail. He's just gotten out. So I had the basic idea. I knew that they were going to be in a family that was structured by Edwin's giftedness. Um, Mm -hmm. Annabelle was sort of always an observer of her father wanting to push Edwin really hard and the mother trying to get him to back off of pushing Edwin so hard and let him have a childhood. And Annabelle was the observer to the side. And Mm -hmm. so this family dynamic structured Annabelle's psyche um, and Edwin's too. So I knew that there was, the question was going to be, okay, well, how did... um, so, you know, Edwin's killed, uh, he, you know, this beautiful painting that he's cleaning for auction has been stolen. There's the beginning of my mystery. But somewhere along the line, I, I was, you know, reading around Victorian England, art, all this kind of stuff. And I came across a story of the Panopticon, which uh, in the 1870s, it was an enormous warehouse that was right there in the center of Mayfair. It occupied, I think, two or three city blocks, basically. And it was ostensibly the safest place to house anything. So people stored their art, their furniture. Um, If they went uh, to go on a grand tour, they would take everything from their London house and stick it in there for safekeeping. Well, one night um, it goes up in flames. It burns for three days. Every single fire engine in all of London is there trying to put it out. But of course, I mean, the oil paintings are completely destroyed by the water as much as they are by the fire. Um, and millions and millions of pounds worth of paintings and um, antiques and pianos and um, papers and money and jewelry and everything. It was all lost. But I thought, and, and they, they, but what was, when, I, when I read the story um, about this and I saw the picture, there's, a, there's a, paint, a famous painting about it. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting thing. And then I found out this 
funny little story that was sort of tucked into a paragraph. And it said that there was a man who had built a big, beautiful wooden headboard for his bed. And he had stuck a secret compartment in there so that he could put rolled up paintings and jewelry and all these things. So he would insure the headboard, but he didn't have to pay to insure all the other stuff. Wow. So I thought, okay, so now you've got people who are, who are kind of like sneaking things in there. But the thing is, there is no sure way of knowing what exactly was lost in the fire. Yeah. Because people yeah. were lying about it. So I thought, okay, so let's say, what if we've got a painting that was supposed to be in the Pantechnicon, but somehow managed not to be in the Pantechnicon? Yeah. You know, so there are all these, so like, I, I guess what I'm saying is that each, once I've got, I'm kind of a third of the way into it, everything I read becomes potential fodder and yeah. it gets dumped in there someplace. So, you know, people say, well, do you research first or do you write first? And I said, it's, it's, um, it's messier than that. It's an uneven process. But I start with a basic trajectory, kind of an opening gambit, I guess, and then start tossing things in the pot. I'm mixing my metaphors really badly there, but that you, but you get the idea. Yeah. Oh, I love the stories you're telling. I mean, that's so fat. I mean, just the ideas and the potential is yeah. so great for to this day. You could say, well, they thought this was lost. However, right. and then is it really or is it a fake? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all it's all good. Mm -hmm. Do you plot? Uh, you know, or are you a pantser? Are you hybrid? How do you, how do you, how do you work the stories out? No, I, I am a plotter. Um, I do believe in note cards. So I guess there's another hangover from my academic days. Yeah. I have a kind of a long hallway and I have, what I usually do is I put points on note cards and on one string, I put the mystery plot and on the other string, I put the character plot. And then I wiggle them around to make sure that they're, you know, I'm kind of getting a little bit of this and then a little bit of that. You're sort of like salt and then pepper, salt and then pepper. But of course, what you want to have is by the, sort of by the climax, you want to have the character in the process of change that enables mm -hmm. him to solve the mystery. So mm -hmm. those two things have to come together. Um, but yes, I do. I use colored index cards and I lay them out on the hallway. Um, and my beagle, I have this, I have a 17 year old beagle named Rosie. And sometimes she comes out and she walks around on them and moves them around and <laughs> just sort of chew her off. <laughs> so, but yes, I do. I, I, I do plot. Um, I know there's some people who can keep a whole entire book in their head, or maybe it's a faith thing. Like they just have a, they just have faith that they can find their way out of, uh, murky mm -hmm. middle, but I, I don't have that. I, I like to kind of have a general map of where I'm going. Your first three novels were, uh, had female protagonists mm -hmm. and your current and next one have a male protagonist. Yes. Now, 1870s, um, you know, things changed and were likely getting better, but women were still 50 years away from getting the vote. I mean, there's a, there, there are a lot of, uh, of ways that, uh, women still didn't have as much, uh, agency, mm -hmm. um, as they eventually did. Did you, or do you find it more freeing to write from a male point of view or, or, you know, tell me about the, the differences. Well, 
for women in the 1870s, I do believe in staying true to the time. Mm -hmm. I, no matter how spunky a young heroine, there's a limit to what she can do. And I think that's okay. I think that's fine to represent that. But also there are ways to give her some wiggle room. And I had a lot of fun doing that in those first three books, finding ways to let her have more autonomy, more agency. There were situations in Victorian England where women were doing some pretty extraordinary things. You had women mm -hmm. becoming doctors, women making their living as novelists, uh, you, know, you know, performing on stage. Um, and in, you know, for example, one of the things that so intrigued me when I was first researching for, um, for actually for both, a, for both a dangerous duet and a trace of deceit, a dangerous duet, the young woman, uh, Nell Hallam is a pianist. And she wants to go to the Royal Academy of Music. Her story was partly um, inspired by the story of Fanny Dickens, who was Charles's older sister. And she was a brilliant pianist. She actually studied with one of Beethoven's prodigies at the Royal Academy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she was, she was not just like tinkling on the keys. She was, she was very, very accomplished. But the Dickens family, as you no doubt know, was in and out of debtor's prison all the time. Yeah. And so at yeah. a certain point, they ran out of money, and she didn't have money for tuition. And this is in the 1820s. And there were not a lot of options for women to earn money. Um, so she ended up having to drop out. And she never went back. I mean, she, you know, she taught, and then she got married, and I think she ended up dying of consumption. And I always thought that was a you know, one of those small, tragic stories. I mean, you hear a lot about Charles Dickens, right? But this is his sister, and it's a it's a heartbreaker. Yeah. But I thought, what if I set the story in the 1870s because there was a rise of music halls in the 1850s and 60s. By the 1870s, there were hundreds of music halls all over London, and every one of them needed a piano player to play the interludes. Yeah, she could have so made a living. She could have made a living. Yeah. And so that's what I did. Right? I kind of took Fanny and I put her forward 50 years. And, you know, and and so the way it worked was that male performers in the music halls, generally speaking, were paid 20 shillings a week and women were paid 10, which is why Nell says, okay, I'll dress up as a man. Now, everybody knows she's a woman. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. an open secret, but she does a really good job. And you know, they, they just kind of let it slide. And she, uh, it makes all this money so that she can afford to eventually go to the academy. But there, there was, there was, there was precedent for a woman going to the Royal Academy. I mean, women were going to the Royal Academy of Music for, you know, 60 or 70 years before Nell does. So there were these opportunities and the same thing with in A Trace of Deceit, Annabelle Rowe, she, um, she goes to the Slade School of Art. Before 1871, there really was not anywhere for women to study art seriously because um, they would have to be in the room if they were to study with men during the anatomical drawing classes with the nudes. And that was just not going to happen. And not even with nude statues. It wasn't, it just wasn't done. But in 1871, Felix Slade, who 
was remarkably forward thinking. He was a philanthropist and he said, I will fund three chairs of art, Oxford, Cambridge, and here in London. And the women get to come in on the same level as the men. You can split them up for anatomical drawing, but they get anatomical drawing with the same professor that the men get. And there's this actually a wonderful newspaper drawing, which I'll show you sometime when we're together, of these women who are in the Slade School. And there's all of these nude statues and they're all drawing. And it's a, it's a great picture. Um, and, you know, and, and so when, they, when the women came into the classes for the very, very first time, there were four uh, full scholarships awarded, two to men, two to women. And what made him, I mean, this is totally off the uh-huh. subject of writing, but what made him do that? What made him fund those scholarships and those chairs? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I should actually probably look into it more, but he was he was a philanthropist and he, he, he from what I remember, he doled money out to all different kinds of causes. But yeah. one of the things is that there were a lot of women, very talented women, who just didn't have an opportunity to study. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So, but that's again, like that true story gives you a little wiggle room. It's a little bit of an outlier, but it was there, you know? Yes. Yes. If somebody says that couldn't have happened, you can say, yes, well, it could yeah, have. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Let mm-hmm. me tell you about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, historical fiction, uh, you know, you're, you're working your fifth book. It's a sequel to the, your current book. Are you, do you ever see yourself writing? in a different era or contemporary, or are you very happy to stay in the 1870s in England for a while? I, you know, I'm very happy to stay, to stay here. Yeah. I do have an idea for a standalone that will be sort of a 1870s, 80s and 90s. It's a, it's a little bit longer. Um, Right now, all of my books take place within, I think between four and six weeks you know, sort of the nature mm-hmm. of the police procedural mystery sort of genre, I think. Yeah. And but this standalone, I had I had this like wacky thing happen to me uh, in December. My daughter was studying at Oxford. She was just doing a fall semester there, studying art and architecture. Um, usually, she goes to college in Chicago, but she was just taking a semester. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to go over and we'll spend you know some mommy daughter time kind of thing and. So I landed on December 1st. I, you know, get off the plane at Heathrow, hop on the bus, go to Oxford, where my COVID test is waiting for me that I have to take and then drop off at a specific location and, you know, the whole bit. And then Julia and I had a nice quiet dinner at an empty restaurant. I hopped on the bus, went to the train terminal and uh, went up to the, you know, the information desk. And I said, I need to go to London. It looks like there's a train leaving for London Paddington in about 12 minutes. She said, yes, here's your ticket. Get on platform three. I go over to platform three. There's this train that says London Paddington in those rolling yellow letters. And I'm sure that I'm on the right train, right? Okay, so I get, (laughs) you can see where this is going. So I get on the train and I open up my magazine and I was sitting there just reading. And there were a couple delays. So I guess there was some traffic or you know, whatever, something was happening on the line and there's a couple of stops, this, that. Anyway, and and I don't know, it was maybe like an hour and a half later, maybe two hours. I'm like, I feel like I've been on this train for a really long time, but I, whatever, I, you know, I'm. it says it's going to London Paddington. I guess there were a couple of delays. Anyway, 
long story short, I I hear the train conductor saying, last stop, Bournemouth. Last stop, Bournemouth. Everyone off the train. I'm thinking, I turned to the woman next to me. I said, what happened to London? And she's like, that was an hour and 40 minutes ago. <laughs> I said, but the train said London Paddington. And she said, well, yes, but you have to change in, in Reading. You get off this train and go over to the you know platform four and get onto the other train. I'm like, like what kind of train is <laughs> London Paddington? And then you have to transfer at Reading. Like, <laughs> and she's like, everyone knows this. I'm like, yeah, everyone except the dumb American. Uh, anyway, so I ended up spending the night in in Bournemouth because there were no trains going back to London. And I, you know, I, I you know, I, I am standing there just kind of stunned, thinking, okay, well, where do I sleep? What do I do? And she says, well, the taxi cab stand. The, this nice woman who's helping me. She says the taxi stand is over there. I said, great. So I went up to the taxi guy. I said, look, I, I don't have a room. You know, I just need a hotel room for the night. He said, oh, don't worry. There's a Hilton. They'll probably have a room. I said, okay, well, I know what a Hilton looks like. We're, we're all good. So I get in the car. We land at the Hilton. Um, I go up to the room. It's really cold, but I'm thinking, well, it'll warm up. It never warms up. So at 1.30 in the morning, I call them. I said, I'm freezing. And they bring up a space heater. And they, the guy walks into the space heater. He says, oh, there's something wrong. This isn't going to cut it. Okay. So then they end up moving me and, you know, there's a whole thing anyway, but at the very, at at, at the end of it, I go to bed, I wake up the next morning, have a couple very good cups of coffee, a nice croissant with jam. And I said to the woman, where's the water? I may, I may may as well walk around while I'm here. Right. So she says it's 0.4 miles that direction. So I start down the hill and I'm walking and it's, um, have you been to Bournemouth? No. no, it's, no. um, yes, yeah, so it's right there, you know, on the channel and it's, uh, it has some kind of, you know, it, it there's a, uh, pier and there's a merry-go-round and there's some kind of cheesy, like photo booth kind of stuff, you know, just like the fun, the fun, you know, kind of summer entertainment kind of things. There's a long, long line of those tents where you can change clothes. There's three people surfing, which I think is insane because it's freezing. And there's a man, a woman and a dog, uh, walking along the beach and there's nobody else there. So I go, I walk all the way to the end of the pier. I enjoy the beautiful view. I can see the Isle of Wight. I see the waves rolling in. I turn around, I'm walking back and there's this huge poster. And it says, Victorian Mansion and Gardens, open to the public, 0.2 miles this way. And I was like, okay, well, you know, it's dropping in my lap, right? So I have to go. So I, and I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm, I'm just supposed to be quarantining. So let's be safe. Like if there's anybody, if it's crowded, I won't go in. I'm just going to go to the gardens. So I go to the gardens and then I go to the front door and there were three people waiting. And I, I said, you know, is it, is it crowded? And they're like, no, it's not crowded. You know, you and these two docents, um, this is the person who works the front desk. So, and the two docents, I, I was the only one in the whole house. And it was all decorated wow. for Christmas because it was December and the music was playing and I was alone. And I walked through the whole entire house and it was this, it was this couple who had traveled all over the world. He had been, I believe, a sort of a traveling salesman. Um, the family's name was um, Russell Coates and he had been a traveling salesman or maybe his father had been a traveling, traveling salesman and he had come to Bournemouth and bought sort of a ramshackle hotel, fixed it up to make it the Royal Bournemouth Hotel, I think it was. And then he, with the money that they made running the hotel, because it became a tourist destination, they made this beautiful mansion. And that was what I got to tour. So this Mm. beautiful mansion with all these windows that faces the water and it's all decorated 
it's, I mean, they lived there in the 1870s and 80s and 90s. They had five children. Um, and it was just chock full of all of their memorabilia from their travels. Um, they had gone wow. to you know, China and Japan and, um, and the, and, and like they had, you know, they had things that were just so purely Victorian. Like when we walked in and there was a glass case and one of the objects in it was a necklace with a baby tooth from each one of her five children. Which sounds a little bit macabre. <laughs> I know, um, but they, yeah. But that's what they did, you know, and like all those yeah. death photographs and, and all, it, yeah. but it was all there. And oh, wow. I got to watch a video about this family and they were very, very interesting. He was, uh, uh, he eventually became the mayor of the town, but he was so unpopular that they burned him in effigy. And she was kind of like came from money um, and was sort of the benevolent, um, you know, mayoress, I guess, of the town. Uh, they had five children. Two of them died very tragically. So it was a, it was just a really interesting story. And I thought, you know, there's there's fodder for yeah fodder for a good novel yeah. here. Yeah, the universe provided you with a whole oh, yeah. <laughs> series. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. Let's go back. Tell me, first of all, writing advice. What's the best piece and the worst piece of writing advice you've ever gotten? Oh, gosh. Or what's the best piece you give to other writers? The best piece, I would say, that I got at one point and that I now give to others is to spend time on the backstory. And everybody does this differently. I have a friend who, you know, sort of goes, first finds photographs online of people that she thinks, okay, that looks like this character and that looks like that character and then starts building it out of there. You know, people work in different ways. I work with a story. So for example, in Down a Dark River, one of the secondary characters is um, Gordon Stiles. And he's sort of the 22-year-old young sidekick with a little bit more EQ than Michael Corbin has. And I probably have four or five single-spaced longhand pages written out. And it begins, my name is Gordon Stiles. I'm 22 years old, and I've just started at Scotland Yard. When I was a child, and, 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 and when I get the story of him in my mm-hmm. head, then I feel like I got my hands around the character. Mm-hmm. And then I can put him in a room with Michael Corvin and have them talk to each other. And I just write down what they say because I know what they are going to say. But I yeah. can't, do, I, I don't do it through pictures. But I, I have to have their voice telling their story in my head and then I can do that. So I would say that's mm-hmm. the best piece of inform, best piece of advice that I can I can dole out. It's great advice. It really is. Tell um, tell me a little bit about your publishing journey. You you know we you had that first novel that that you know stopped you from writing for a while, yeah. and then um, came back to writing mysteries. And how long between writing your first the book that became your first book published um, between writing it and and getting it published? What was that journey like? I always find other people's journeys so interesting. I don't, I don't know if mine is this particularly interesting, but I, it was slow. Let me just say that it was very slow. So I began a lady in the smoke 
when I first started it, it was a young adult novel. I was, it was the book that I was working on through that ASU writers program. Yes. So my heroine was 15. Her mother was a laudanum addict. They're in this railway crash in 1874. There's all of this, uh, intrigue and, you know, a stock scheme and parliamentary stuff going on and various things. And, uh, so I, I wrote it, sent out, got lots and lots of rejections. Um, this was still in the day when people sent back paper rejections. And I, I could have cut them all into snowflakes and, you know, had a very nice little snowstorm. And I was very discouraged. And and then a friend of mine, uh, we, I remember saying her saying to me, you know, you can't give up on this yet. See if you can find somebody who can help you. And I found a developmental editor. Her name is Maisie Coker, and she works for Tin House now. And she helped me get the book in shape. Uh, For example, one of the things that was wrong with it was on my, so that the the initiating event is this railway crash that that the young woman and her mother are in. Well, I had that in chapter seven. Now it is in chapter one, which is where it belongs. But those, I had six, six chapters of just, of backstory, which is necessary to be mm-hmm. in my head, but it could not, it wasn't supposed to be on the page when and mm-hmm. it certainly wasn't supposed to be in the book. So things like that. So she helped me get it in shape and then I sent it out and then I got interest. I had about four or five agents. I contacted them. I found them on publishers marketplace. You know, I did my research. I looked for agents who were accepting manuscripts, interested in historical fiction, you know, accepted things with young women protagonists. You know, some people don't like they, they tend to be more gritty and, you know, sort of police procedural. So I did my homework, found, I think, 10 or 12 agents, queried them. Five people wrote back saying, yes, I'd like to take a look at more. And then I ended up signing with uh, Josh Getzler um, in New York. And one of the first, you know, he told me, I love this book. He says, however, you have a young adult protagonist and an adult plot. You need to figure out what you're doing here. Like, like, let's, let's talk about that. And he, you know, we, we spent some time talking about it. I said, okay, because no like 13 or 14 year old reader is going to be interested in parliamentary intrigue and stock schemes, but that's intriguing for an adult reader. So we right. aged up my heroine, you know, this is like my 50th rewriting of this book. And, and eventually it, you know, it, it was a, it was an adult book. It was an adult mm-hmm. novel of suspense with sort of some romance in it. And, he sent it out. We had some interest. Um, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a there's a Friday when he contacted me and said we had two uh, people interested. And I thought, oh my god, my first book going to auction. It was so exciting. And then on Monday, he contacted me and said they both backed out. They just felt that the market was saturated. Victorian mysteries weren't really selling all that well. They had, you know, and I was kind of crushed. Uh, but I thought, well, I've already got this idea about a young woman in a musical, so I'll just take off with that one. So, you know, I mean, I felt like, well, I at least got close. I have an agent. Mm-hmm. And I, I at least got close. So that was good. And I started working on Dangerous Duet. And I don't know, about maybe four or five months later, I get an email from Josh saying that we have an offer on Lady in the Smoke. And I had given up on that. I, I, that was already sort of in my mental drawer, I guess. And, and we got an offer. It was kind of an unusual one. It was with Random House Alibi, which isn't in existence anymore, but they only do eBooks. Mm-hmm. And it was a, you know, it was a young editor, Priyanka Christian, and the book got published. And 
at first I was very disappointed that it was an ebook and not on the shelf, you know, because you love to see your stuff on the shelf. But it actually worked out really well. Uh, it sold well. Um, they did, uh, BookBub did some promotions for it. And uh, I think it's I think it sold maybe 35,000 copies, something like that. Wow. And then we got an audiobook deal. And so that was my first experience with audio as well. That was really interesting. And, um, and then meanwhile, Priyanka moved over to HarperCollins, where she, where she kind of brought me with her, and I got a two-book deal there. Uh, and then about three-quarters of the way through my first book, she left for her dream job at Hachette. And I don't blame her at all. It was a promotion. It was a great step for her. But uh, getting orphaned is yeah. challenging. So... That was, um, that was kind of a difficult period. And, uh, so then I finished Dangerous Duet, finished Trace of Deceit, and I was cast out <laughs> onto the waters. And, but, you know, it's not, not a bad thing. Um, I landed in a really good spot. I think the Crooked Lane is sort of just the right place for a book like Down the Dark River. And, um, it's, you know, it's, it's worked out, it's worked out really well. Um, and I, and it was good for me because it, it kind of gave me the kick in the pants I needed to tackle something a little more ambitious. Um, writing mm-hmm. in a man's voice is, is tricky. I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time reading books, uh, like the born identity and books with male protagonists out loud to train my ear. I read Victorian, uh, police reports, which are, of course are written by men out loud to get my ear trained. Um, I can't do it just by reading it silently in my head. I just, I need to actually hear it. So I spent a lot of time doing that. That was a, that was a new thing for me. And, um, and I knew I needed a male protagonist because the story that I wanted to tell, it had to be, it had to be a man. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for telling your journey because I, again, I think that it's really helpful for people to hear. I mean, it's, it's not a straight shot. It's a roller coaster, right? It is. all kinds of curves yep. and you don't always, you can't always anticipate them, but you got to buckle in and stay on the ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, you know, you end up where you're going to be. Um, so sisters in crime, uh, you are a member of both chapters in Arizona. You're, you know, you uh, volunteer with the national board. What has community meant to you as far as your writing journey goes? Oh, it's been so important. I didn't realize it, until I went to BoucherCon in October of 2019. This was right before COVID. And it was my first writing conference. And it's a big one to fall into the middle of. You know, I didn't start it with anything yeah. small. <laughs> it was a big one. And hundreds and hundreds of people. And I happened to know four or five people there who were very kind and introduced me around and, you know, made sure that I had somebody to eat lunch with and, you know, and all that kind of thing. And I was on a panel with a few people who have become very good friends. One of them is Mariah Fredericks. And, uh, I, I think there, I looked around and I saw my people. I saw people who were way, way far ahead of me on that writing trajectory and people who are where I was and people who are, you know, behind me and just starting out. And, but the, I realized there are a lot of different ways to be involved in the mystery community. Mm-hmm. You, you can blog, you can teach, you can do short stories, um, long stories, novels, all different genres. Yeah. And it was interesting because one of the things that Mariah said to me 
I think it was when we were at BoucherCon together, was that she's found the mystery community to be very supportive. She, you know, her comment was sort of, we, a lot of us have come from other professions and perhaps as a result, we don't take ourselves terrifically overly seriously. Yeah. Like we, we enjoy ourselves. We promote each other. We beta read for each other. And, and I think we sort of commit to enjoying the process. Um, at least a lot of the friends that I've made in the mystery community. And when I feel sometimes discouraged or alone or frustrated, or like my book is just a tangled mess and I can't figure it out. I have people I can send three chapters to and say, can you tell me what is wrong here? And they will, they will tell me straight. And it's the best gift because you may not want to hear, I mean, after your book is published, you don't necessarily want to hear what's wrong with those chapters, but before it's published, that is a gift. Yes. So that is what community, I guess, is, has meant to me. That's a great, I mean, all true, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, and the crime writing community is a very good community for sure. Um, So you're working on the um, next book. Mm -hmm. Uh, now and what's do you know what the timing is for that? Well, I just handed a draft into my agent yesterday. It's due to my editor March first, and it is coming out November eighth, I believe. Great. So Great. yeah, that's um, exciting. And the first one came out last fall, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. In November. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's actually, it's funny because November is my birthday month. So it's always a big hoopla. We've got birthday, we've got book. And, um, and, and down a dark river, I was lucky that, uh, the poison pen was able to do an, uh, a live event. It's also on YouTube, but I was able to do a live event with Barbara Peters and the poison pen has been a wonderful literary home for me. They're very, yeah, they're very generous. Yeah. No, they, they're incredibly uh, supportive of a lot of writers for sure. And it's a wonderful bookstore yeah. um, in a world that we don't have enough mystery bookstores. <laughs> it's good that you, you're lucky to have it. Um, Karen, thank you for a fascinating conversation and uh, congratulations on the book. And, uh, you know, you've made me want to find out more about 1870s Victorian London. So Good. <laughs> uh, I know I could do it with your books, but I'm also intrigued at some of these stories. And I want to look up that warehouse and that fire because yeah. that just fascinates me. Yeah. And, the Pantechnicon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for putting that brain idea in that's going <laughs> to keep me on the computer tonight. Um, but thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.